For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Gun control advocates are trying once again to stop the permitless carry law from taking effect November 1st. Representative Jason Lowe and others are challenging the law as unconstitutional, saying it violates the single subject rule. Ryan, is there a case here for the law being unconstitutional? You know, I think that there is. I mean, if most Oklahomans, when they think about the open carry law that goes into effect November 1, barring some action by a court, they think that what the, law, the only thing that the law did was to allow permitless carry uh, by anyone over a certain age and you know, in most places with a handful of exceptions. That's what most people think was in the law. But in fact, there were multiple things in that law, in, including exceptions dealing with undocumented immigrants uh, and a huge waiver of any liability for government, uh, government employees with regard to their use of firearms uh, in their personal or potentially even their professional capacity. And so that's something that the single subject rule, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in this mm-hmm. program, but uh, in the single subject rule, the goal of the single subject rule it has two goals. One, to provide transparency in government so that lawmakers and voters know what is being voted on. And two, to prevent log rolling. And log rolling, like we've talked about before, is the uh, proposition that a lawmaker or a voter has to vote for something uh, that they don't like in order to get something that they do like. You know, we see that in Congress all the time. Our state constitution wisely says that that is prohibited with very with very rare exception, and this doesn't seem to meet any of those exceptions. Neva, well, I think this is I think it's a frivolous suit. I think when you look at it, I mean, it's clear that the that the legislature passed a bill, the governor signed it into law. It uh, the fact that now after the fact there's this effort to try to stop it at all cost. I think what we had is this group that. Uh, decided to go to district court, see if they can start the delay process. I mean, they're going to have a hearing on uh, October 30th, two days before it goes into it, it, the law goes into effect. Uh, and if they can if they can slow down this process, stop it, delay it in the courts, which appears to be you know really what uh, what is prompting all of this, then they can decide whether they want to take another initiative petition route or do something else. It's just this effort to try to stop something that clearly a majority of Oklahomans uh, I think clear understand you know what this law says, have no major issues with it, and uh, in, in the in the instance of this particular state representative. And the two other groups involved, I think they really uh, don't have a leg to stand on with respect to this w- with respect to this case. And I, you know, Neva, and I don't know that uh, I think you and I may disagree as to where the general public is <laughs> on on this actual law. Uh, and I haven't seen any you know, recent polling that shows if you really drill down into what open carry, what permitless carry allows Oklahomans to do, whether or not Oklahomans really do favor that. But let's let's assume for a moment that there is overwhelming support for it. That, to me, really uh, strikes at the heart of what the single subject rule is meant uh, to deal with. There are situations where you've got something that does have overwhelming support. Even if it doesn't have overwhelming support in the public, it did have overwhelming support in the legislature. That concept does. Now, the, you know, if you begin to test the concepts of waivers of liability for government employees and how they use firearms, uh, if you begin to test the issue of undocumented immigrants and the way that they're treated in this bill, I don't know that those have the same broad support in the legislature. So you could, I think that there is a good argument. I don't think it's frivolous. I don't necessarily think it's a slam dunk. Um, But I think that there is a good solid argument that lawmakers were put in a position of voting for permitless carry. uh, So, and then they, then they wedged in these, they log rolled in these other things around 
uh, immunity for uh, for lawsuits against government employees. But with many major pieces of legislation, oftentimes a bill is passed, becomes law, and then lawmakers come back in subsequent sessions and have to have to address things that come out uh, as a result of that. That uh, were whether they were unintended consequences or issues that are raised. I mean, I think we've seen that in so many issues uh, in the last several years. So I don't think that uh, that this is the process to go through that if they have issues that they believe are something that are narrow, specific, that need to be addressed again, there's certainly a process coming up in the legislative session to go down that road. Oklahoma City's MAPS 4 is also facing a constitutional challenge on the basis it violates the single subject rule. Former City Councilman Ed Shadid says the latest version of the penny sales tax is illegal because it contains multiple projects. The city argues it doesn't violate the, the Constitution provision and the single subject rule only applies to state lawmaking, not municipal ordinances. Neva, do you think this will stop the vote on December 10th? I, I, I'm not sure. I think at this point it's a question mark, but I think the city's argument that... Uh, uh, that the constitutional prohibition applies to state lawmaking, not municipal, I think is a, is a solid uh, point to be made. And I think that uh, with this argument about whether or not this list of projects constitutes uh, these separate items, uh, the multiple subjects idea that uh, 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 Shadid is uh, advancing, I think, I think what the city says is, in fact, uh, been the case all along, and that is that it's a resolution of intent. It's really an administrative outline. I mean, it's it's not legal earmarking. It is and it is passing money that will be used over an extended period of time, and then they outline those projects as time goes by, and they may change uh, based on uh, based on uh, certain things that transpired during the course of you know seven or eight years. Ryan, well, I think that this case has a very uh, very very strong argument at its core, and you know the the city's response um, has been you know twofold. One. They've said, well, of course, Ed Shadid filed this lawsuit. He's a political opponent of the MAPS proposal, of the MAPS 4 proposal. Uh, well, just because somebody's a political opponent of something doesn't disqualify uh, the legal arguments that they're advancing in court. I mean, if, if that were the case, then you would only allow people that were disinterested uh, in a proposition or people that agreed with the proposition, but as a matter of principle, wanted to see it thrown off the ballot, that they would only be the only ones that had credibility in front of the court. That's just not the case. Of course, he's opposed to it, but he also thinks that the process by which the city put all these projects together, and we talked a little about log rolling earlier, this is, and the single subject rule, this is log rolling at its finest. I mean, you have people that have, I mean, if you talk about disabled Oklahoma city residents having to vote for a new, uh, you know, uh, tax credits for the thunder in order to get sidewalks, uh, you know, those are the kinds of decisions that voters shouldn't be faced with. You know, Neva mentioned that this was a resolution of intent and that the actual ballot measure is a general revenue raising measure. What Shadid's lawsuit says is that that case just really doesn't hold water because if that's really what they're doing, then they're trying to circumvent the, uh, the intent of the single subject requirement. The other question of whether the single subject, the single subject rule applies to the, uh, to the state legislature exclusively and not to municipal governments even if the constitutional uh, single subject requirement doesn't, there's a statutory requirement that does seem to apply to municipalities. 
But I think that the same analysis that the Supreme Court has used uh, to apply the single subject rule against the state legislature, that's going to apply at the municipal level. And if they apply that analysis, I think MAPS 4 is in trouble. I think really underlying all of this is this is MAPS 4. I think that's the first point to, to, to make. MAPS 1, there were many, many of these same issues that were raised. I mean, you had people that wanted a library that didn't care about having a ballpark. You wanted, they had, they had projects that they wanted, uh, but in, in the, in the overall scheme of the of just building a consensus what you had is uh, you had Oklahoma City voters decide yes we will have this sales tax yes we will uh, allow the the city to move forward on you know a, a multitude of projects over over a period of time and we're really seeing nothing different this is just a continuation of what has been a hugely successful effort on the part of the Oklahoma City Council uh, with full support of Oklahoma City voters yes there are always blocks of uh, voters who don't want uh, money spent and on any of these types of projects, but they have been the minority minority voice in this. And I think when all is uh, when it's all said and done, and this lawsuit uh, finally is resolved, I think Maps Four will move forward with the December 10th vote, and I believe that voters again will uh, go to the polls and, in all likelihood, will be supportive of what's uh, what's in front of them. And Ryan, since this is actually going, money is going into the general appropriations; it's not actually going into these product projects in a general appropriation you have multiple things that go to yeah, it. So, so if that's, it, yeah, so that's general, usually accepted by That's the, accepted the, by the, the single subject requirement. I think that in the state statute, I mean, if the court finds that the, the, the bait and switch that the city council does with the uh, resolution of intent and saying, well, the resolution of intent really doesn't matter. It's not enforceable. Uh, it's only enforceable politically. If the council members don't follow it, then the voters and their wards can throw them out. Then I do think that should ease lawsuits in trouble. But I think that if the court sees through what the council's trying to do there, they've created the structure trying to insulate themselves from the requirements of the single subject rule. And uh, if the court says, well, wait a second, you really don't get to create some process that means that you're immune from having to follow the Constitution or follow a state statute. And what we've seen is whether it's this maps, uh, maps four or previous maps proposals, there have been projects that are very popular and projects that are not popular. And the projects that are not popular get to free ride on pap- on the backs of the popular projects. And I don't. I just think that uh, Oklahoma City voters shouldn't have to choose between mental health funding and a new soccer stadium. If we put them all on the ballot all together, then I don't know that the soccer stadium passes by itself. But I think mental health uh, mental health funding does. And the point is, we don't know. But the bottom line is, the city council approved this resolution, and all they're asking the voters to do is to extend the one cent. Uh, map sales tax for another eight years, and then they have outlined their intent on the um, uh, projects that they believe have broad-based support. I mean, and you're right, Ryan. I mean, we're not going to find a project that everyone says, okay, let's find the project that we've got 100% approval on or some, you know, sweeping approval. And if it's only 40%, you know, the people that really want it or 62%, maybe we will never, you know, entertain that idea as something that would be good to enhance the overall uh, benefits of the livability and, and the uh, attractiveness that uh, come with these projects uh, for any major city. And I think that's what you have to look at. As MAPS-1 was developed, it created and and reinvented downtown Oklahoma City and made us the place that we are today, which is a much different uh, picture than before MAPS ever came on, the, came on the scene 25 years ago. Just very quickly, Ryan, do you think this will stop the vote on December 10th? I think that this has a very strong uh, chance of stopping the vote.
vote on December 10th. I think that the I think that the Supreme Court will likely take jurisdiction over the case because of the urgency of the matter. I think that they'll want to dispose of it. I think that we're we're seeing now the real question, not whether you agree with maps or not, but there is a question of process and single subject rule is do we do business the way we've done business in Oklahoma or do we begin to have like these projects uh, project lists that look a lot more like what happens out of Congress with appropriations bills? A woman who has served 15 years for failing to report child abuse moves a step closer to freedom. The Pardon and Parole Board approved commutation for Tondaleo Hall and sent it to the governor for his approval. This case has shined the light on Oklahoma's female incarceration rate, especially after her boyfriend, who actually committed the abuse of her children, only served two years behind bars. Ryan, this was welcome news to everyone involved in the case. Yeah, and, and a huge congratulations. Meg Lambert, staff attorney at the ACA of Oklahoma, Tondaleo Hall's a legal counsel throughout this commutation process that's not over it's in front of the governor's desk right now he's got uh, a handful of uh, months to sign it and you know hopefully he'll sign it fast and and uh, Tondale will be home with her family you know it's possible that she could be home before Christmas but it's more likely that she'll be home uh, sometime after the first of the year and I can tell you I sitting in that pardon and parole board meeting earlier this week uh, whenever they took up her case there wasn't a dry eye in the room uh, myself included uh, it was it was incredible to watch uh, justice work after injustice had been done for 15 years. Tondaleo Hall was herself a victim, not just her children, but she was a victim of, of sexual violence. She was a, a victim of emotional and physical abuse by the abuser of her children. And because of that, she was punished. I mean, so here we have a situation where a woman who was a victim of abuse herself ended up spending 15 years in prison. And, you know, that's 15 years too long. Tondaleo Hall didn't belong in prison for a single day. Uh, but she's been in there for 15 years. The good news is, is that the governor, by his signature, has an opportunity to make sure that she doesn't serve the remainder of her sentence, which is another 15 years. David, do you believe the governor will sign this? Uh, you know, I have to believe that there's an excellent prospect the governor will sign it because he's made uh, criminal justice reform a priority in his administration. This certainly uh, uh, points to that. I think the, the pardon and parole board, when they voted unanimously, yeah. was the signal. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, in the past, I mean, as we know, I mean, for years and years, it was uh, virtually impossible to get uh, to get past the pardon and parole board in, in these types of, of hearings. And and even more significant, I think, given given what you've just described as as what this case really is, Ryan, is the fact that her three children wrote letters to the pardon and mm-hmm. parole board, and District Attorney David Prater recommended uh, the commutation of her sentence. So you know, uh, through through a lot of this uh, criminal justice reform uh, effort and uh, uh, in in the past few years in Oklahoma, the district attorneys have taken it on the chin as, you know, as uh, being uh, uh, oftentimes the roadblock or, or some of the, the folks that uh, uh, the criminal justice uh, movement has felt like have impeded uh, serious progress. But in this instance, I think you had everyone coming forward and really trying to rectify what is a real travesty uh, in the life of this one individual. Ryan, do you think it's time to revisit this failure to report law? Well, it's, yeah, failure to protect laws. That failure, we, to protect, you know, failure to protect laws. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And, um, but I think more importantly than that, because we can change the laws all day long, but we don't have to change the law for DAs to do the right thing right now. Uh, Tony Hall was prosecuted, the discretion to prosecute her, that was up to a DA. The reason that the evidence of her abuse didn't come into court in the first place in her original trial was either at the intent of the assistant district attorney at the time or by just recklessness and ne- neglect on their part because they didn't file the proper notice to bring in evidence of her abuse. You know, so that you know, that's really where the, the failure lies right now. And I, and I, you know, I appreciate that David Prater wrote this letter. 
I think he wrote it, you know, probably uh, 15 years too late, uh, but I'm glad that he wrote it. And I would just suggest to every other district attorney in the state of Oklahoma right now that there are women in prison today under similar circumstances, and they should use the power of their offices to get them out as free to get them out and make them free as soon as possible. But and I think for criminal justice reform to continue to move forward on all fronts, from the governor's office, the pardon and parole board, the appointees, uh, the people in the district attorney's uh, offices across the board. I mean, I think we have to have this concerted and collaborative effort that we talked about. I mean, it can't be adversarial on the outside and then try to correct all of the problems that we see sitting in our prisons in terms of stories just like this that went before the, the and, board this week. And I want to be clear, David Prater was not the district attorney at the time that Tondaleo right. Hall was prosecuted and, and convicted. That's so I want to, I want to make, so I want to make that clear. Been West Lane um, by, and, by that time, I think? Yeah, I think it, it was West Lane, and it was uh, the the... Prosecute the assistant district attorney there now is a district attorney in another district in the state of Oklahoma, and so you know Angela Marcy, she's out in Western Oklahoma. She's a, she was the assistant district attorney that prosecuted that case. Now she has her own DA jurisdiction, and so these DAs have an enormous amount of power that they can begin to operate in ways that keep people out of prison and help get people in prison that shouldn't be there out faster. And so that's where the discretion lies. Of course, we need to change the laws, but there's so much that can be done without even having to lift uh, you know, the governor's pen after the legislature passes a bill. A state lawmaker wants to revisit the issue of capping non-economic damages in compensation cases. Earlier this year, the state Supreme Court ruled Oklahoma's $350,000 cap on pain and suffering was unconstitutional. So Oklahoma City Republican Representative Chris Kennedy says he wants to bring it back up for consideration in the coming legislative session. Neva, is there a way to make this constitutional? Well, I, I think there's a way to have the conversation in the next legislative session. And obviously, Chris Kennedy, as the House Judiciary uh, Chairman, is in a, in a good place to kind of uh, uh, really launch that conversation again. And I think I think the question is, you know, who are going to be the major stakeholders, you know, the groups and associations on the outside? Where, you know, is that group going to expand or is there going to be uh, an effort to bring these different parties to the table, medical associations, state chamber, others who have long supported reestablishing the uh, the cap on dam damages for pain and suffering? That is key to this whole, you know, this whole equation. So I think that, you know, from a legislative standpoint, I think we can expect uh, uh, that the conversation and probably some bills will uh, probably start to move their way through uh, pre filing and into the session next year, whether they're whether they get a different uh, a result or kind of a different approach out of that. I think that's the big question mark. Right. I mean, what this I mean, if you remember this case, uh, you know, uh, dropped last spring and you had a, a man who was lucky enough to survive uh, a horrific accident. He was awarded six million dollars by a jury. Uh, he had you know, multiple amputations. He lives with chronic pain and will for the rest of his life. Uh, it's, you know, just told totally changed his and his entire family's life. A jury said that that was worth $6 million. That was reduced uh, by the cap on non-economic damages to $350,000. They appealed. The Supreme Court said, listen, we're treating people differently here. We're saying that if you're lucky enough to survive, you're unlucky and that we're going to cap you at $350,000. If you're unlucky enough to die, your family then can collect uh, above that $350,000 in non-economic damages. That violates the special law prohibition in the state constitution. That's what the Supreme Court said. They said you can't treat two classes of people here, one sur people who survive an accident or, uh, or something, and those who don't differently unless there's a really good reason. And here there's just not. And so this, I really think that whenever that came down, I, I had some conversations with 
folks at the Capitol. And, you know, I think that this could lead to another ballot measure. You know, I think the legislature could seek to try to amend the Constitution. Um, and that'll really be, if you look at who funds that ballot measure, you're really going to see who's behind this. You know, this isn't small businesses in the state of Oklahoma. This is big insurance companies, big insurance companies that want to keep more of their premium in their pocket and they don't want to pay out. And you know, that's we haven't seen that at the legislature in a long time because tort reform and work comp reform have largely, you know, kind of been litigated in the courts recently. They haven't played out at the Capitol. It used to be the only thing you heard at the Capitol was work comp reform and tort reform. And so we've got a brand new crop of legislators that have never voted on any sort of tort reform measure. You're going to see the trial lawyers uh, and advocates for injured people show back up at the Capitol in a way that they haven't in years. Uh, and you're going to see insurance companies and, and chambers of commerce show up like they have in years. So it's going to be this old fight that many of us are familiar with, but a lot of these lawmakers will be seeing for the first and, time. And there's points on both sides because, I mean, we can't discount the fact that even from the medical profession, from the medical association's point of view and, and their physicians, I mean, you have to have a favorable climate in a state for physicians to be able to want to come here, to want to practice here. Uh, the medical malpractice insurance, it has to remain affordable. I mean, and, and we've seen these issues in state after state, not just Oklahoma, uh, and they are serious issues from an economic standpoint to the state and for providing quality health care to the citizens uh, that have to be factored into this. So it's not it's not a one-dimensional fight. It's not a one-dimensional debate. And I think, again, as I always say, I mean, one of the best things that lawmakers can do is to get all of these uh, competing uh, interests together and to try to develop scenarios where they can address some of the big issues uh, in a way that don't that don't make it an either or proposition which seems to be the way the pendulum has swung in recent years is it's an either or proposition take it or leave it and that's never good for the average working Oklahoman and if you think about getting folks together there's there's no better example of that than than a jury and uh, I when I when I hear from the the man that was at the center of the Supreme Court case who was injured what he was saying was that every one of these cases is different. The facts are different. The injuries are different. The, the effect that the injuries have on the person, they're all different. And that's where a jury and a judge can come in and make these individualized decisions about what an award of damages should be. And so I, I think that the, the campaign at the legislature, and then ultimately if this ends up on the ballot, the campaign at the ballot, there's going to be a real question for Oklahomans of do they trust politicians to make an arbitrary decision about a cap on damages, or do they trust average Oklahomans sitting in a jury box to make those decisions for them? Now, you know, truth be told, a lot of these things don't make their way to a jury, but mm -hmm. one or two jury verdicts begins to help uh, set a baseline of what these cases and what these injuries are actually worth. And I think that that does a better job than the legislature does in, in, in most cases. The state Senate hires a former staffer as the new redistricting director. Keith Beal, who previously worked for Lieutenant Governor Ta Todd Lamb, is taking the position for $105,000. Ryan, what do you think of this hire? You know, I think that uh, you know John Estes, who uh, works over in the state uh, House of Representatives now for Speaker McCall, he said that they're going to be appointing somebody soon. And I don't know if I don't know if he intended to say it this way or not, uh, but he said we're going to be hiring somebody that's nonpartisan. And you know, the hire over in the Senate is somebody that comes from the political and the campaign world. You know, and I'm speaking from a guy that's from the political and campaign world. You know, so I guess this is a, you know self-deprecating on my part, but. Um, I think that as we've looked around the country and all of the litigation around re, uh, redistricting over the last uh, several years that have made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, has tied up redistricting in numerous states around the nation, um, the real problem with that is the, uh, the effort to inject partisanship into the way that we redraw these boundaries. For 
years, you know, we used to say, well, we're going to draw based on racial lines or whatever. And, and the courts have said, well, that's, that's illegal. You don't get to do that. But the court's given pretty much the green light on partisan gerrymandering. And, you know, to bring in a partisan to begin this process, I think, sends the wrong signal to Oklahoma voters about the way this process will happen. Um, and, you know, so kudos to the speaker for making, drawing that line early and saying, we're going to have a nonpartisan person appointed here. What Oklahoma really needs is a commission. And I think that, you know, there's a chance we talk about ballot initiatives, a chance Oklahoma voters are going to get it to vote on a commission that would be an independent redistricting authority that would take it out of the hands of lawmakers and, and partisans altogether. Neva? Uh, you know, partisan, partisans inside the uh, Capitol building, I mean, let's face it, I mean, whether they've got an R or a D next to their name, it's not the issue. Are they qualified to do the job that they've been tasked to do? In this instance, Keith Beal, I mean, he has experience. I mean, given the fact that he has political experience uh, extensively, he also was involved uh, back in the day with uh, uh, former Governor uh, Frank Keating and the House and Senate Republicans, back in 2001, 2002, in the redistricting process. So he understands it. And and what you have in the House and the Senate with a director is someone who's going to help the members navigate the process. Ultimately, the members are responsible for this process. And so I think what we will see is what we've always seen, uh, uh, pro tem treat, uh, has indicated that there will be members, both Republican and Democrat, uh, uh, on the committee. As Speaker McCall has said, the same thing will happen on the House side. So there will be ample opportunity for every member to have input in terms of the configuration of their respective districts as they begin to look at those numbers and and begin to come up with plans that would uh, that would impact it would in fact pass muster. But to to really try to taint it and say that any one person is going to have some inordinate effect on, you know, making it a fair process, I think is unjustified. I think what we have are, are typically folks with political experience, and hopefully, uh, in, in some cases, they will have at least maybe gone down the road in a previous redistricting or be very familiar with that process and can help facilitate it for, as you say, Ryan, a lot of new members who, you know, this this will be uh, something very different. It's something that it gets imposed on them uh, in addition to all of the regular things that go on during a legislative uh, session. So it's there's always a, a, a kind of an extra um, kind of aura to that in terms of, you know, what the ultimate process is going to look like. But, you know, I have full confidence that these folks know what, will know what they're doing and will have a process in place quickly that will be good for all members and ultimately for all Oklahomans. Not everyone's going to like the way the final lines are drawn. No one ever has. A hundred percent liked them, but uh, even inside the uh, House and Senate uh, bodies, they, they don't you know, every everyone has uh, you know something that they would like to change, but you have to you have to come up with this consensus as mandated by Congress. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.